Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Steve Carver. Mr. Carver has directed such movies as The Arena, Big Bad Mama, Capone, and Lone Wolf McQuaid. Lone Wolf McQuaid will be shown Saturday, March 14th, 2015 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. Now, on to the interview. We're showing Lone Wolf McQuaid starring Chuck Norris, and this was your second collaboration with Mr. Norris, the first being Eye for an Eye. Could you discuss how your collaboration got started, and was it a good collaboration? Uh, Yes, it was a good collaboration. I had originally had a relationship with the producer of of Eye for an Eye, Frank Capra Jr., prior to uh, doing Eye for an Eye and wanted to do a picture with him. And when he suggested that I work with Chuck Norris, who had done a couple of pictures, I jumped at the the invitation and, and the idea and met with Chuck. And I liked him. Uh, he was a young, at the time, <laughs> a young upstart. His, his aspirations was to become like John Wayne, to be a uh, an icon in American movie making and to establish the martial arts as his forte, his uh, genre, uh, action-adventure martial arts pictures. Eye for an Eye, which we shot in, in San Francisco, I, I got close to Chuck and, and, and his family, his two sons and, and his wife at the time, and I really enjoyed the relationship uh, with this, you know, the Norrises and vowed after making Eye for an Eye to work with him again. I went off on other other projects, but what had happened was that the writer, one of the writers of Lone Wolf McQuaid, Kay Dial, was a friend of mine, and he introduced me to B.J. Nelson, who he had worked with, and they had a script that was written about a Texas Ranger. It was called Lone Wolf Gonzalez, who was a real Texas Ranger that had worked alone most most of the Texas Rangers work alone, and the script fascinated me, and the first thought came to mind was Chuck, and so I had uh, approached Chuck to do this picture, and, and that's that's how it all happened, and, and that's what's my relationship with Chuck at the time, and, and doing Lone Wolf McQuaid, uh, he was fascinating to work with because he had matured as, a, as an actor, still had his style and, and his drawbacks, most athletes, many of which I, uh, I had worked with in, in other pictures, are so trained or so uh, systematically trained, I should say, that they approach acting in the same manner, and it gives them a stiffness, a, a, a wooden quality that doesn't really allow them to open up because of their training and their methods, techniques of, of uh, learning things, whether it be dialogue in a, in a movie or 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 a, uh, a stunt routine, an action routine, and they they do it by the numbers in their head, I, I suppose, and and this gives them a certain uh, stiff quality. And as a director, I have to work with people, especially Chuck, to uh, relax him and to get more of a human quality to to his performance as opposed to uh, by the numbers. When I watch Lone Wolf McQuaid, I detect the Sergio Leone influence, and you mentioned on the audio commentary of Capone you had several dinners with Mr. Leone. Uh, did you pick his brain about filmmaking? Well, <laughs> he didn't speak English. Let's put it this way. It's very hard to pick somebody's brain when they don't speak your language. I, I had met him first when I was in Rome, Italy, doing the arena for Roger Corman. That was in 1971 and 72. He was shooting at Elio Studios, which was uh, near where I was shooting. I was at Fonoroma and um, Cinecita, and uh, he had worked there as well. But I had met him in a commissary and, and over food, which he loved, and he was a wonderful cook, and he was a very rotund uh, person due to the fact that he loved food. It was very difficult through an interpreter to establish a, a real uh, connection with him. But later on, uh, Leone came to 
came to to, to Beverly Hills where where I was, uh, I, I was I did a picture called Drum, and he had been friend of the producers, and I had sat down with him, and his English was a little broken at the time, and and established more of a relationship with him, and really got it in my my brain to do uh, a picture in his style or in his you know you know just paying homage to to his style and techniques and so on the real crux of 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 having the italian influence and and putting that leone flavor into into lone wolf mcquaid really came from the music uh, i had met Ennio Morricone, one of his disciples, Francesco De Masi, did the music for me on the arena in, in Rome at Fonoroma. And this was Morricone's uh, sanctuary. It was actually a church, and the sound recording was phenomenal. And I was able to, to sit with uh, Morricone for quite a, a long time and, and, and pick his brain he spoke English, and I was able to get the flavor that he instilled in, in Leone's pictures. So it was a collaboration, actually, putting a whole bunch of little uh, details and a, and a whole bunch of, of formulas together, ingredients, I, I suppose, that, that allowed me to capture some of that in t- Italian flavor in Leone's style itself. Uh, with big close-ups and a lot of the techniques that I studied through his pictures. But uh, having, you know, when you when you speak to another director as a director, it, it's very awkward because you don't want to sound like you don't know anything and you don't want to sound like you know everything. So the middle ground of, of speaking with another director and, and sharing ideas uh, becomes uh, very vague and awkward. So the relationship, really, that I had had with these Italian filmmakers was awkward in in a sense that that I wanted to pay homage to them and I wanted to to learn their methods and techniques, but I didn't want to uh, imitate them or or put them at at uh, an uncomfortable relationship in in that I I was mimicking them or, or the interpretation could be uh, with a lot of American directors making fun of of their style and, and their uh, interpretation of, of uh, storytelling. So that really was a challenge and, and something that I, I um, was very uh, aware of doing, trying to be certain that, that what I was doing was something that I created and something that I was borrowing and and, and interpreting on my own. In doing research, I've read screenwriter, director John Milius did an uncredited work on the screenplay. <laughs> Is there any truth to this? Yes, uh, John was a good friend of mine, and what had happened was when I first read the screenplay, it it, it was interesting in the sense that, that this was a uh, a novel idea of, of a Texas Ranger, a lone wolf that, that went out and did his own dirty work and and they were ruthless in real life they they uh they took no prisoners basically and and when they went out to to capture someone wanted dead or alive they usually brought them back dead and their their hardware their guns their their rifles their everything that they had had was top notch and and big caliber and and over the top much of which uh, uh, is illustrated in Lone Wolf McQuaid. But in the script, it, it was a very by-the-numbers script, and it had a lot of problems, not only story-wise, but technically. And I thought perhaps John Milius, who uh, was a, a shooting buddy, I, I, we both belonged to the NRA, and we used to go out with guns and do our thing, macho style. And I thought that perhaps... John can lend some ideas to the script to polish it and and help me uh, steer it in the right direction and, and also put in these these uh, interesting aspects of the uh, you know the guns and the and, and the type of guns that were used uh, because John was uh, an expert at, at uh, and a collector of guns. But it started out where Orion, who had picked up the picture, who 
up the production, Ryan didn't like the opening of the picture. The opening of the picture was an action picture where Lone Wolf Gonzalez at the time goes out and kills a guy who's wanted, and it, it's cut and dry, and, and something that, that they didn't like because it was uh, stereotypical of a lot of Dirty Harry and pictures like that at the time. So I went to John and I asked him if he would help me rewrite the opening sequence, which is a memorable sequence in the sense that, that it draws the audience into a, a Western. It makes the audience believe that this is going to be Western style with horses and cowboys and so on, and rustlers in, in particular in, the, in Lone Wolf McQuaid, and, and show off Chuck as an invincible and, and ballsy Texas Ranger. And John sat down and, and, and helped me write the opening of it and put in some of the, you know, the uh, gun aspects or the details of, of what was used in the picture, you know, the firearms. That was my relationship with John, and he, he was great to work with. He didn't want to credit. He didn't, for reasons that, that uh, are hard to go into, many people who work on pictures, including myself, sometimes don't take credit because we don't feel that uh, credit is due. And, and also uh, the association of John Milius with, with Chuck Norris at that time wasn't, wasn't uh, a, a perfect match. Uh, he had done, he was doing, uh, I suppose, some uh, pictures for Dino De Laurentiis at the time. And for reasons, I guess, guild reasons, director guild reasons, uh, it didn't take the credit. But I did give him a little recognition in the credits at the end of the picture. And, and I also I, I speak about it because it was a fun collaboration with John. Along with Lone Wolf McQuaid and other movies you've directed, Steel, Capone, Drum, River of Death, and The Telltale Heart, your movies have very dramatic opening credit sequences, and, or I should say atmospheric. Are you trying to set a mood of the movie when you're doing a opening credit sequence? Yes, I, I think the opening credits are important in a movie because the audience, you, you only have so much time, and it's a short amount of time, to capture the audience, to get them to suspend their disbelief and to go along with the, the movie magic that you're presenting and the story in particular and to introduce the characters to an audience that they either like or dislike them but are interested in them. And... The opening credits in all movies should, and this is my belief and my opinion, should capture the audience, should capture their imagination, should capture them into the story, and whether they read what's on the screen or not is not important to me, because they, if they're interested in the picture, uh, they'll see it again, and, and, the, and, the, and the titles will, the opening credits in particular, will have some significance to them as far as who was in it and who made it and so on. What I was trained when I went to the American Film Institute by some really great filmmakers, uh, my mentors, was to design the opening credits. My background is in art, fine arts, and I've always loved credits that, that were imaginative and had flavor, gave flavor to the picture and, and literally got you into the picture. The Design of credits was very important in a sense that color is important. Uh, in Capone, for instance, I used red a lot. Uh, red is a, a color that, that uh, depicts violence. Uh, it's something psychologically that when, when projected uh, in a dark room and on a screen gets the audience to sit up and take notice. It's a color that, that permeates... Uh, the, the mind uh, with regard to, to action, violence, and, and so on. And uh, it's representative of blood and representative of a lot of things that, that, um, that psychologically enhance the, uh, the experience for the audience. In designing the titles, there, there are, there's type to take into consideration, the type of type that depicts the error of the movie, if I'm 
doing something that, that's a uh, costume picture and a period picture uh, using old type and, and stylized type uh, is, a, is another way to psychologically influence the audience and to, to, to get them to, to, get, to capture their interests, I should say. And then, of course, the music. <laughs> the soundtrack that goes along with opening credits is very important. Uh, I think that soundtracks that put you in the mood to accept whatever genre the picture is allows the, the audience to, to settle back and, and, and no surprises. And then there's also the surprises in the opening credits where you shock the audience or you, you do something that, that's a little different and, and put them on edge. A lot of credits, if the legal aspects of credits, which there are many, uh, if the legal a aspects can be relaxed, you can actually get an audience wondering without any title, without any writing at all uh, or any type that comes up, just some animation or some images in, in a credit sequence. It's still called the credit sequence in the beginning. Uh, you, can, you can literally um, set the audience in a direction, especially relating to the genre of the picture. And, and that can be very interesting, and I've done that in a couple of pictures. The idea of designing the opening credits is just as important as the idea of presenting the, the opening sequence. And if it can blend into it, if it can have, be related to the opening sequence, it's great. If It's not important, but it, it's something that I have done and, and tried and, and not done. <laughs> I'm looking at your movies, and you seem like you have your own stock company of actors, David Carradine, L.Q. Jones, R.G. Armstrong, Dick Miller, Royal Dano, um, Terry Kaiser, Richard Roundtree. Um, what are the advantages of working with the same actors in your various films? When I was at the American Film Institute, I had met a lot of directors and producers. One in particular, Sam Peckinpah, influenced me a great deal. Uh, I was on his set when he was shooting several pictures, and, and, I, and I, I sort of like picked his brain a lot. <laughs> that idea of uh, a director picking another director's brain, again, it, it was done in a certain way where uh, Sam was very um, uh, sensitive to people, to young people trying to mimic his style uh, as opposed to uh, Leone. But in any case, what I noticed and what I became aware of with Sam was that his relationships with the actors were more developed off-camera than they were on-camera. He had a lot of friends, many of which uh, he used over and over again. And this stock company, this uh, group of, of actors that he can rely on, they were character actors. What he did with them was to, if, if he had had a scene that he knew the actor was going to react a certain way. As a friend, he would work on him off camera uh, as a friend, as one of his friends. And he would literally get the actor to understand what he was after in the scene in a way where he wasn't the director. He was a friend talking to him. And I thought this, this was a unique working relationship to have a, a group of uh, guys you can depend on. And, and literally, when you're on the set with these friends who are actors and, and people that you hired, uh, which is a, a contradiction because when you hire someone and you're paying someone, it, it becomes a very awkward situation because if they refuse to do something that you would like them to try or to do, uh, it gets down to the fact that you employ them, and, and they're your workers, and they're going to do it. And that makes it awkward. But as a friend, when you don't get involved in the, in the finances and you don't get involved in the, the uh, business end of working with somebody, and you literally go on a set with your friends and, and have some fun, you get better results. And this is, this is how Sam worked. You would have a beer with somebody and, and get them in a certain mood and, and then shoot the scene. <laughs> 
And I, I, I thought that that was an interesting way to work. And when I was at the American Film Institute, I did a picture called Patton, uh, and I used a lot of Sam's uh, technical people uh, from the crew. I was able to approach them through Sam and ask them to uh, work with me. And you know, this was a, a short film, and, and it was an action picture using squibs and, and a lot of special effects and mimicking Sam in, in a way. I became close to these people, and, and some were actors that, that actually became crew members with me. And I approached a lot of the people that Sam had known based on the fact that I was able to be introduced by Sam, and I can approach them and say I'm a friend of Sam's and so on. And this is how I met L.Q. Jones and R.G. Armstrong. Many of these actors, Luke Askew, uh, they, they were real down-to-earth people uh, coming from mid-America and, and, and not city-dweller-type people where you get hung up in, in, uh, in facades and, and Hollywood uh, formalities and stuff. And by working with these people, I was able to communicate with them easily, sometimes not at all, just to look would uh, give them direction or something that was personal that I can say to them would give them an idea as to what I had in mind with regard to a scene or, or what I wanted them to do. It wasn't by the numbers, and it wasn't, it avoided that type of technique where you show them you're going from a point A to B and you're doing this and, and so on and so on, you know, and, and you give them a direction in, in a very technical manner. This was sort of a personal manner. Uh, you, you, you can just get them to laugh a little bit at things that are unrelated to the scene just to get them to do something or to, to be a certain way. And I found working with these people and, and getting them easily through their agents, since uh, I, I had a personal relationship, I, I didn't have to deal with their agents. I just called them and said, hey, I'm making this picture and I'd love for you to play this part and I'll send you the script. And it was easy to hire them. And it was easy to, to, you know, get them to accept all of the, the limitations that, that were, are presented in a low-budget picture, especially the salaries and, and the uh, uh, gratuities. Uh, a lot of times in a big picture, in, in big studio pictures, these actors were used to being treated like royalty. On smaller sets and, and smaller productions, uh, without the, the money and the gratuities, uh, they accepted the environment, whereas on other pictures they probably wouldn't have. And that relationship with them allowed that to happen more readily and, and without problems. You've mentioned the AFI, American Film Institute. You also made the short movie, The Telltale Heart, based on Edgar Allan Poe's short story. And The Telltale Heart had an impressive cast of Sam Jaffe, Alex Cord, Edward Benz, and Elmer Bernstein did the music. How did you assemble all these artists together? That was uh, by magic and, and by the American Film Institute's status. Uh, I was the second class of fellows that, that was accepted to the Institute, which was uh, uh, located in Beverly Hills at a mansion called Greystone, and it was just beautiful. And some oil magnate had built this big mansion, and we moved in. And it was like being, <laughs> well, it's indescribable as to my, my first impression of it, going to this gigantic estate and and having incredible mentors. My, my actor mentors were Charlton Heston and Gregory Peck, and my director mentors was George Stevens Sr., George Seaton, several other directors that, uh, you know, Sam was there a lot, and I met Alfred Hitchcock and so on. And when you're surrounded with all these people, you get a status uh, in the industry. You, you can actually walk onto sets, which I was able to do. I, I worked as an assistant uh, director with Dalton Trumbo on Johnny Got His Gun and uh, met a whole bunch of actors and, and people that I was able to approach as an uh, intern, say, uh, from the American Film Institute. We were called fellows. It was accepted through the industry. I can walk into any studio and ask. Sometimes I get the answer no, but I can ask for anything I want, from costumes to 
award, you know, to make up to uh, to props to whatever. I, uh, I'm a fellow at the American Film Institute. I'm doing this short, and can I borrow this? Or can I have this? And usually it was yes because of that status. What had happened with the Telltale Heart was that I had done this first picture called Patent, and basically the story was about a soldier who patents death. And he can only do it once, obviously. He dies in the end of the short. And uh, it was a fun picture. I, I was basically interested in Peckinpah's uh, special effects people, and and this was a uh, short film that I had written and and done when I projected it for the industry people that were invited to the American Film Institute screening, George Stevens uh, Jr. turned to me, who was the head of the AFI at the time, and said, who's going to see this picture? Who are you making this picture for? And it was an interesting, very simple question, and it got to me in the answer, which I did not have at the time, was that the audience is, is very important when you make a picture, because why make the picture? Why make the picture? Because I wanted to, I wanted to study and, and learn special effects. That had a lot of merit. But who was going to see the picture? It was bloody. It was kind of novel in a sense that here's a guy that, that dies in front of you, and, uh, and I filmed it in slow motion and so on and so on. It had that gratuitous effect. And actually, because of Peckinpah's, uh, you know, Wild Bunch, <laughs> that got to me, and that's pretty much what I was, uh, I was mimicking. In any case, that question prompted me to study the classics for my next short film. And I loved Edgar Allan Poe, and The Telltale Heart was a nice short story that, that really attracted me. So I wrote the script based on Edgar Allan Poe's short, and it came out well in a sense that because it was Edgar Allan Poe, everyone recognized the, the story and I was able to shop it, uh, literally go after anybody that I wanted to play in it. And at the time, I had met Sam Jaffe through uh, Edward Robinson, who was a friend of my family's. And I met him at a dinner at uh, Robinson's house. And Sam said, sure, I'll play it. <laughs> and this was a role, no dialogue. In fact, there's no dialogue in the in the picture. It's all voiceover by uh, by the uh, lead actor. What I had done was to approach all these actors, Ed Bins and um, Alex Cord. Uh, Alex uh, was just finishing a uh, Kurt Douglas picture called Brotherhood. Brotherhood, yes. And uh, I just approached him because I saw him in a commissary in one of the studios and said, hey, I'm doing this picture with, with Sam Jaffe, and I thought maybe he'd like to be in it. Strange casting, in a sense. Here was a, uh, a city guy, uh, Alex, I, I can't recall, but he's from a big city somewhere. And, and Sam, also from a city, but two different types of actors in a classical picture. But because I was able to you know, get Alex to study uh, more of an English accent, which in some respects came off uh, effectively in the picture. Uh, I was able to, to mask the, uh, the differences in their, their backgrounds and, and, and the casting uh, oddity of, of, uh, of what I had in mind. Uh, Alex had long hair at the time, and uh, it fit in with the, the time of, of the, uh, the, the Telltale Heart story. And then Ed Bins I had met somewhere, <laughs> and I just approached these people. I, I had this, this ability, and I learned how, how to do it in a manner that wasn't aggressive, that, wasn't, that didn't turn off the person. And I was able to appeal to their, their artist instinct as another artist and as a, an upcoming creative uh, filmmaker. I, I wanted to... Uh, to, to have these people work with me, but not feel that, that they're, they're going to be in charge or, or that I wouldn't direct them or give them direction. And it was a feat because this was my second production, uh, commercial production, and it was, um, it was something that I had to do very carefully and with a lot of thought in mind, uh, which came to the music. When 
even before uh, filming, I was very cognizant of the fact that the music was an important aspect of, of this classical piece. And I thought of all the great composers, and Elmer Bernstein uh, came up, obviously, in Magnificent Seven and all these these big orchestrated pieces. But actually, when I met with Elmer, he had suggested just doing it with a synthesizer and uh, a piano and and doing it in in a in a small way not not something that was orchestrated uh which later on uh, I had gotten into and and loved actually this was more fun and more personal and what he would do what he did uh at the time was he sat down at the piano and a synthesizer and I projected the film at his house projected a rough cut of the film and he actually composed it and we recorded it right there and put it onto the picture uh, in the post-production later on and he was able to capture the mood and it was a fun piece and and it, it was fascinating to work with these professionals that taught me a lot and and literally made me understand what what, what it was to compose to to direct to to uh, become a filmmaker. It, it was an early education uh, that was fascinating and, and done with professionals as opposed to many students working with other students or, or other people that, that uh, want to break into the business and, and didn't have that experience. Uh, so I was very fortunate and, and very happy <laughs> to have met these people, which again is, is, is luck. Uh, it, it's not something where y you pick a name of someone that you want to work with and, and find their number and call them. That's awkward, and that's not really the manner in which it's done. And it, It's done really on a personal level where you get to know the person over lunch or dinner or or just a conversation and and then approach them. And and that's basically how the Telltale Heart came about, and, and it was uh, considered for... Uh, uh, an Academy Award nomination. It, it played in the movie theaters uh, with uh, Mary Queen of Scots. It was uh, a short that was presented to the audience, I remember, uh, which made it eligible for the Academy uh, Awards. And uh, although I didn't win it, I uh, lost out to USC at the time. Uh, it wasn't Spielberg or Milius, but one of those guys beat me. It was uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun, and the picture still plays. My sister is uh, an English teacher, and she uses it at, in her classroom. And many schools around the country uh, use it as an example of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's, you know, piece and his writing. And I'm happy with that. <laughs> you started to work at Roger Corman's New World Pictures, and you used to cut trailers there. And what makes a good trailer? The funny thing about writing trailers, uh, especially with Roger Corman at the time, was that I, I was thrown into it because because of the telltale heart and because of Roger having made Edgar Allan Poe pictures for AIP before and my meeting Roger at the screening of the telltale heart and he offering me the job to come work at New World Pictures he threw me into making these trailers and I didn't know anything about them and I didn't know exactly what trailers were designed to do especially with Roger's pictures because he was doing a lot of campy type pictures, uh, horror pictures and, and motorcycle pictures and girls in bondage and so on. And what I learned on the job and doing is that you can write any text that you want in a trailer that announces and, and introduces characters or introduces a film or some aspect of the film. For instance, uh, one of the things that I wrote, which has a following, believe it or not, is a small blurb, a thousand pounds of hot steel throbbing between their legs for a motorcycle picture that I had done. And I, I wrote this with a camp in mind, with uh, you know being corny and being overly insinuating the sexuality of the, the piece and so on. I was able to get away with these things because the trailers were colorful, and I was able to get by the MPAA, which was very, very critical of trailers because trailers sometimes because you're you're truncating all of the violence and the action and the the horror and the this and that uh, 
you're causing a lot of trauma to the audience. It's a psychological trauma. And what happens is you're running things by so quickly that they have a, a memory even of three or four frames of something that's horrible, blood, something gutsy, uh, whatever. And, and a lot of these things were taboo at the time. And, and trailers emphasized this. It, it was a strange phenomena in a sense that in a movie, because it's drawn out and because it's, you know, you, you move up to it, uh, it introduces you, and, and then little by little you're, you become aware of what it is that they're introducing you to, the horror, the, the guts, the violence, the, the this or that. In a trailer, because it's so quick and fast and truncated and, and abbreviated, it gets exaggerated and it gets worse. So the more you try to hide something, the more it becomes evident and the more this this peripheral element of uh, horror or sex or violence is done, the, the more <laughs> the, the, the trailer has this effect. And uh, in doing these trailers, I got clobbered by the MPAA time and time again to, to cut, to cut, to cut. But every time I cut it shorter, it became more evident and it became more concentrated, I guess, or, or uh, potent. And the effect that I suddenly had was, you know, show them the footwork. In other words, what I tried to do is I, I tried to put writing over these horrible images and put voiceover and all kinds of things to dazzle them with my footwork as opposed to the actual punches. And that's how I learned how to make these trailers. And, and these trailers still have followings. Uh, I still get a lot of correspondence from people that love seeing these trailers, many of which are still in production, uh, you know, somewhere. Uh, I don't know who's putting them out, but uh, they're coming back, and, and, and a lot of people have seen them online and write me. Trailer making was fun, and I quickly got out of it. I only did it for less than a year, but I, I did maybe 100 trailers or maybe 150 trailers of all types of movies uh, that Roger was making at the time. And when you started directing for Roger Corman, the arena, Big Bad Mama, Capone, Fast Charlie, and the Moonbeam Rider, they were all these period movies. What was the attraction to doing period movies? That was Roger's thing at the time. There was no attraction. It was just a financial thing. They, they were gathering audiences. They were in demand. And Roger's ideas was that a, a period picture could be made just as cheaply as a modern contemporary picture, and it was more fun. It, it lent more to, to different genres uh, that Roger was uh, interested in putting out. The audiences loved them. When you make our pictures, the uh, contemporary movies uh, are limited. You can only do so much action and so much adventure and so much this or that that you know was in contemporary times. Uh, the audiences at the time wanted something different wanted gladiator pictures, wanted gangster pictures, wanted girls in bondage pictures. Uh, that was the B-movie. That was the drive-in movie audience, and the period picture was favorable. I've read uh, Roger Corman will sit his director down before he's directing his first feature and give him advice. What advice did he give you before directing The Arena, your first movie? He gave me a lot of advice, <laughs> Roger, you know, I love the guy. I mean, he's, he's a really great producer. He's great to work with. He's a great teacher. Uh, he's a great guy. And one of the things about Roger was that he would never pull any punches if he was just pleased with something or if he wanted to tell you how to do something and didn't want you to experiment or go off on some tangent. He'd be direct. And one of the things that I had heard prior to getting my first break with Roger to direct the arena was that Roger would take the script, you know, it would come on the set, rather, or, or call you if you're on location and ask if you're on schedule. And because the budget was never known and the budget was not important to the filmmaker because if you're on schedule, you're on budget with Roger. But Roger would call and ask about the schedule. Are you on schedule? And if you said, no, I'm a day behind or I'm a half a day behind, 
he would then eliminate pages out of the script or eliminate you, <laughs> which he did with several directors. So I was already privy to the fact that, that Roger was going to tell me what to do, and I was already accepted, accepting the fact that I would accept, and, and, and with open arms, just to make this picture, my first big feature film, for Roger and accept anything that he would tell me. And I was surprised because one of the things that I think Roger recognized was the fact that I had a style or was, was you know, striving to create a style uh, of filmmaking and my background was in art and, you know, he, he enjoyed the fact that I had visual training and, and was able to to understand a lot of things that he would communicate and, and want and, and envision himself from from a project. And what he sat me down and he told me where to place the camera, how to film scenes, basically. I mean, I, I, anybody can learn how to film a scene, how to place a camera and, and compose a, a shot. But Roger's idea was to put as much production value up on the screen as possible. And there was a lot of details to this. This is not something where put everything in front of the lens and, and you get production value. It's sort of like if you, like for instance, when I, I did the uh, Capone and Big Bad Mama, uh, these were gangster pictures with uh, 20s cars and so on. What Roger suggested was to paint the cars differently on each side. You'd have a black car on one side and a red car on the other side. And don't film the car down the middle where you see the two two tones. You film it from the side, therefore you get two cars out of one car. This doubled the production value. He also told me about extras. You know, you have an extra walk in front of the lens, dressed one way, and then as that extra clears the lens, gets off camera, he changes quickly and runs around the camera and goes back and he's a different guy. So you get two extras for the sake of one. Of course, I got three or four extras for the sake of one. But these were ideas that Roger had had, not only technically, but, but creatively. They, they spurred a lot of other ideas, how to do things and, and put more production value up onto the screen. His idea of presentation was fantastic. And the idea of he suggesting to me how to build sets, how to present the sets, how to create wardrobe, how to do all these things, and, and doing these period pictures, these were important aspects to, to making the picture, you know, have more production value. So I took note of all this stuff, and it, it was incredible. His one approach to giving me ideas to, to directing actors was also uh, unique. I developed this, this personal approach with character actors later on, but through Roger, the relationship that he had had with actors was more professional, uh, uh, to, to, to describe it. It was one where, uh, good morning, how are you, uh, visit them in their trailer, make sure they have everything they want, uh, make sure there are no problems with regard to something that may come up on the set, uh, set down all of the, the professional rules and regulations with them early on, Da-da-da-da-da. It, it went on like that. I took note of it, and, and certainly it works, and, and certainly it was something that I did on the arena with Pam Greer and with a lot of the other actors, Margaret Markoff, and, and, and working with even the producers and the Italian people there. Roger's approach worked. I mean, you, you're professional. You're a professional person. No bullshit. Nothing that sort of like created problems. And... I took that and, and I basically used it as a point of departure and, and developed my own style and my own approach to, to directing actors. But uh, Roger's thoughts and what he would tell a director was right to the point and it had a lot of meaning to it and a lot of, uh, um, you know, the, the reality of, of having to avoid problems on the set, therefore causing time, therefore causing money, and therefore causing you the job, maybe, was to get everything out of the way very quickly and to keep it that way, to keep it very septic and very professional 
in a sense where you don't create any problems or ask for any problems later on. So that stuck stuck with me, and, and that was an interesting conversation with Roger. And, and the conversation wasn't just one sitting. It was a lot of sittings, and, and it was really something that became more intense as you got closer, as I got closer to going to make the picture overseas. Roger was always telling me something. And it wasn't teaching, and it wasn't advice. It was professional knowledge. And for that, I really you know, respected him. I also read you overtook the directing job of Drum after Burt Kennedy was fired. And what are the challenges for a director taking over a film that's already started shooting? Well, that was the, the first time I did that. And that was horrible. It's a horrible feeling for the director who is taken over from another director. Firstly, Bert Kennedy was a great guy, great director, and I saw no merit into his wanting to leave due to creative differences with Dino De Laurentiis. I had no idea what had happened, and a lot of his actors, uh, his group of entourage uh, of character actors similar to Beckhampour and, and what I adopted, they left with him as well out of loyalty. Here I felt like a director, a young director coming in, backed by this powerful producer, Dino De Laurentiis, telling me to fire people, telling me to fire actors and hire new people and to do this and that and, and, and so on. It's a horrible feeling. It's a feeling of being a... Uh, you know, in a, in a striking situation, being one of those people that go in and, and non-union and, and do things. Obviously, I was union. I was guild at the time, and, and this was an MGM picture and United Artists picture, and and it was something that, that was professional in a, in a sense, but also notorious. <laughs> I had to work with people who did not accept me, thought that I was the cause of, of Bert's uh, leaving, I wasn't the cause of it. I, I, I came after the fact, and I just had to mop up things. Taking over on a picture, which I did, unfortunately, many, many other times. I did it uh, on other martial arts pictures and so on. And the ruthlessness that's necessary in telling actors from the previous director were led to perform a certain way and telling actors that they're doing it wrong or doing it they have to do it differently or whatever. It is a horrible thing to do. <laughs> it's not easy. There's a lot of politics involved. There's a, a lot of diplomacy involved. And there's a lot of technical aspects involved, too, because you're literally undoing and redoing or changing things that were working or not working or, or, or different. And you're instituting a whole different atmosphere, a whole different situation. You're, you're starting from scratch. With Bert Kennedy's situation, uh, he had shot three months in Puerto Rico uh, of the opening sequence with the slaves and chains, and he had shot several scenes with some of his, uh, his character actor friends. And these were, for what, some reason, they displeased Dino De Laurentiis, and then the personality conflict came into play, and and Bert decided to leave, and he literally handed over the baton front to me. I, I had conversations with him, which I had to, uh, also uh, politically uh, guild rules, and taken over from another director. There, there is a passing of the baton, and there is a, a, a communication, a, a relay of some communication, based on the fact that I had to know certain things. I adopted a lot of the the crew members, the great cinematographer... Um, Lucian uh, Ballard? Yeah, uh, Lucian Ballard. <laughs> God. I'm terrible on names right now because I have so many things on my uh, brain right now. But in any case, yeah, Lucian Ballard, who chose to stay, uh, he was a good friend of Bert's, or had worked with him in the past. And this was something where, if you understand from a crew's point of view, the direction in which a director gives a crew, as well as the actors, is different than what you're used to having done on the picture. And you stylize certain things, and you 
you know, with Lucian Ballard, for instance, he lit the set a certain way for Bert, and I came in and I was requesting something else or, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, there, there are a lot of technical things that change. And all through this, this uh, changing of the guard, you're, you're battling, you're, you're trying to stabilize, you're, you're trying to do a lot of things that was put into motion and, and you're, you're trying to change it or stop it. And the actors, uh, dealing with actors. <laughs> actors are like children at times. You know, Kenny Norton, first time I met him, he threw a brick at me. Why? Because he thought I was the enemy. I was the guy that came and, and uh, got Bert fired and whatever. And I had to work doubly hard to gain their respect and their allegiance and create a relationship with all these people. I mean, this was a crew of 150 people. Uh, this was a large studio crew. Gilliman was shooting uh, King Kong for Dino De Laurentiis on the other stages, and I was shooting on these stages. There were like eight or nine stages that I was, I was using for the sets and using a lot of practical locations. And here, you know, I had to change things. I had to deal with things. I had to bring in certain people to replace certain people. I mean, Dino had a hit list. Get rid of these people. Their 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 uh, their allegiances to the other director, and we don't want them. And then there's the political aspects of of having to deal with, for instance, the editors who were under the the full control of the former director to cut a certain way. And here I was giving them footage that was quite different. Kennedy was designing his scenes differently than, than I do. I, I was working from a storyboard that was totally different because the, the script was changed. And here the editors were uh, in chaos. They, they didn't know really what to do with the footage that I was presenting to them and how it was relating to the previous footage. So a lot of it that Bert had shot was taken out due to that fact. And I had to redesign the entire picture. It wasn't an easy picture to do. I was limited in the budget. I was limited in the rewrite of it. I was limited in a lot of respects, and it's like trying to do something with your hands tied behind your back. And um, it's not a comfortable feeling personally with people, and it's not a comfortable feeling with yourself trying to rationalize what you're doing. So I wouldn't recommend uh, changing directors ever, but they do it for various reasons. On that film, you worked with the cult actress. She's developed a cult over the years, a Rainbow Smith, and she played Sophie Maxwell. Could you yes. discuss the relationship, director and actress, that you two had? <laughs> Rainbow Smith. She <laughs> she was um, she was an actress that I chose due to having to replace and, and redevelop. You know, when the script was, was rewritten per Dino's request, and there was a lot of reasons for that. Uh, let, me, let me just backtrack a tiny bit. The reasons why the, the script was rewritten is because uh, Dino had a falling out with uh, Paramount, who was going to release and distribute the picture, and the fallout was over money. And when he went to UA, United Artists, they gave him less, so the budget was cut. And then the criticism because of the genre and because of the racial elements of, of the picture, because it got hammered even before filming, just the idea of doing a sequel to Mandingo. Mandingo made money and, and was well-received in, in a certain light because it was novel, but when Drum was presented, it presented problems because it was much harder and it was a sequel that Carl Onstad had written in the, uh, uh, what was it, um, not Haven, was it Havenhurst or whatever that series oh, Falconhurst. was? Falconhurst. What was it? Falconhurst. Falconhurst, that's right, Falconhurst series of novel, novelettes or whatever they are. He being, uh, Dino De Laurentiis, put a lot of re restrictions. So when I had to cast for the new character of Warren Oates' daughter, promiscuous and crazy daughter, it was designed differently, and I was presented with her by the casting director, and because of the time element, I literally had to start up the production within two weeks 
of Bert leaving. When you try to do something like that, it's phenomenal. Uh, it, 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 it's indescribable as to what needed to be done just to get the production back on track. And in casting her, she was an, an oddball, so to speak, in that she didn't have a lot of credits. She wasn't a method actor or had any techniques of, of background in acting. And she was quite different, especially with Warren Oates, in a sense that everybody liked her instantly. She was a, a fun little girl, sort of like a free spirit, and really played the part in her personality. Uh, using her personality, I was able to, to get some of the fun out of the scenes and, and her to do some of the outrageous things in the scene. And the suggestion of what she did, which came under a lot of fire from the MPAA and from critics that uh, reviewed the picture even before it was released. It was a, a, a difficult relationship to have with Rainbow. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe, but what I remember was that even in between takes, she was a free spirit and, and a fun little girl and not a trained actress. So I, I, I don't know what more to say about her. Um, I know she uh, she had a uh, unfortunate death later on, and but that's all I know. Uh, you made a river of death with the Cannon Group during the Golan Clobus era, and what was it like working with the two cousins? <laughs> it was good. Uh, there were there was a lot of critical things going around the industry about them being cheapskates and. Uh, being, uh, you know, cheats, being this, being that. <laughs> I found them to be honorable and really nice. Menachem was one of my good friends, became one of my good friends, and, and I, I'd do anything for him. In fact, I had a, a whole picture deal, and when Kenan went down, it was a sad thing uh, because my picture deal uh, disappeared. Chris Pierce uh, took over the Canon at the time, and he was not a, uh, a friend, and... and and sort of not a friend to Menachem and, and Yorma as well. I thought that they were good producers in a sense that, one, they made pictures. They made a lot of pictures. Two, they gave the industry a shot in the arm in a sense that Cannes Film Festival, a lot of the festivals and a lot of the film marketing events became really uh, interesting. They were really representing Hollywood as Hollywood should be represented, in that they were interested in, in, in making movies and, and, and being uh, sensational about their releases and, and the way in which they presented filmmaking uh, in Hollywood at the time. I liked them. I had no problems with them. I had no problems financially with them. I had no problems personally with them. I thought they were good guys. I have to ask you, you mentioned earlier you were assistant director on Johnny Got His Gun based on Dalton Trumbo's novel, and yes. this was the only film Dalton Trumbo ever directed, though he wrote a lot of great pictures. And yes. Just what was that like? Was it kind of an emotional experience, him directing his own work? At the time, the, the, when I was at the American Film Institute, it was suggested that uh, one of the things I could do was to become a, an intern on, on or a... Uh, I forgot what it's called, but they had a program through the Directors Guild for me to latch myself onto a production and to observe a director in, in working. I had met Dalton Trumbo through George Stevens, Jr., and he um, was gearing up, uh, Johnny Got His Gun, and suggested that I come on the set. And I thought I would just be an observer, but he put me to work instantly. I was doing all the extras and I had a lot of fun doing those, and I learned a lot about directing just from directing extras. I mean, these are people in the background that don't say anything, really, but do a lot and, and don't do a lot. <laughs> and it was interesting. It, it, it was challenging, to say the least. What I observed from Dalton was that here was a guy, having been blackballed and having done great pick Spartacus and so on, and... and being very well-connected and very well-respected in the industry, regardless of, of the politics that went on and that was going on even at that time. Because a lot of people looked at Dalton as a writer and a not an activist, I forget what it's called, but somebody who 
had an opinion about people in the industry, especially their politics, and uh, they didn't really respect him as a director. One of the actors, uh, what's his name? Uh, again, I'm, I'm at a loss for names, but there was an actor. Uh, what Jason Robards? Yeah, Jason Robards Jr., right. Thank you. Boy, you're good at this. You're good at my memory. Um, I was uh, assigned to Jason as his gopher in the beginning. I used to drink ale. I, I he was introduced to ale. He loved ale. And his girlfriend at the time was uh, the actress uh, Humphrey Bogart's ex. Oh, Lauren Bacall. Yes. Yeah, Lauren Bacall. She would come to the set and, and the trailer, and I would have to sit in the trailer with him drinking ale reminiscing about some of the things that he did and where he was and all that, and she would come, and we'd have a good time drinking ale, all of us drinking ale. I'll never forget that. I used to get tipsy and lightheaded, and Dalton used to send for me, and <laughs> I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Uh, but in any case, working with Dalton was a trip in, in the sense that his son was the assistant director but I was used more as assistant director and learned more about assisting directing than, than anybody on that set because I, I had a hunger and I had an uh, enthusiasm and an energy that, that you know, wouldn't stop me from doing just about anything. And I got to know everybody on that set, and I got to work with everybody on that set. And I, I loved sitting with Dalton and, and just talking about things. Um, his direction and his directing wasn't classical in the sense that he would. He, he wasn't a. Uh, let me let me put it this way. He wasn't a, an actor's director, and he wasn't a director's director. He was a writer, and because he was a writer, he was able to work with dialogue well, and he was able to do things with the script with regard to making changes or, or altering it in in ways to make it better. But uh, he had very little sensibility. I, I shouldn't use that word, and, I, and I'm not trying to put him down. I certainly don't want to talk bad about him, but he didn't really have much to do with setting the camera or the visuals. Let's put it that way. And just one final question. I was reading online about a book of photography you have coming out called A Dying Breed. Can you talk about it? Well, it's not called A Dying Breed anymore. It's called Unsung Heroes and Villains of the silver screen. Yes, uh, th this is something, I just built this studio and lab which I'm sitting in, and I'm going to finish that project. It's going to be a book of about 100 character actors, many of which unfortunately have passed away. R.G. Armstrong, uh, uh, Denver Pyle, uh, have a whole bunch of really great character actors that have worked in westerns, and people know their their faces, but they don't know their names. And I want this book to commemorate them and, and to to celebrate the Western and to celebrate the character actor, actually, who I adore. And, and I think that character actors are what make movies movies. I'm doing these these portraits of these actors for the book in, a, in an old-fashioned manner, uh, sitting them down and with long exposure, as was done at the turn of the century, and, and huge cameras and, and big film and, and big processes to finish image in black and white, sepia-toned. I hope to do a whole bunch of great actors coming up. I'm going to be working on it for as long as it takes to finish this book and to incorporate in the book writings from other people uh, that, that other people will collaborate with me about character actors and about Westerns. Sounds great, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for the great, not good, but great <laughs> interview. <laughs> thank you. I, you know, I, you bring back so many memories to me. <laughs> I thank you. <laughs> you. You've been great, and um, I wish I could talk about these things forever, but I understand it's only an interview. I would like to thank Steve Carver for doing the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street on Saturday, March 14th at 2 p.m. to see Lone Wolf McQuaid. Today's music is the main theme to Lone Wolf McQuaid by Francesco De Masi.